0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists.
1: Yeah, in the moments leading up to it, you know, walking out of the field site, there was so much wind blowing above that threshold of motion. You're just watching sheets of the beach deflate. Right, deflation is this mm-hmm. process where we have the winnowing away of finer material, mm-hmm. and that removal of mass causes the surface to, as the name implies, deflate. Right, lower mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never seen it happen this rapidly in front of my very eyes. I mean, it was happening faster than I could possibly measure it with the modern tools that we have.
0: That's a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Today's guest is Pete Taraskevich, PhD candidate at the University of South Carolina. His current research focuses on coastal dunes and understanding how seasonal vegetation, such as dune grasses and sediment interactions affect dune growth and post storm recovery. So Pete, thanks so much for being here.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So we like to start off with a little bit of background. So can you just let us know about your background, how you got into this field of dune research?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people within the environmental sciences, you know, it's sort of dumb luck that you have that one class that sort of clicks, you know, Mm -hmm. in undergrad. And for me, it was coastal geomorphology. And I was fortunate, too. I took it at a time where I was also kind of getting into surfing, you Mm -hmm. know, so Mm -hmm. the ability to do research, but also enjoy being in the same environment for recreation was very much there. And so... You know, I I was hook, line, and sinker from semester one, and that led on to a undergraduate thesis that then pushed me into a master's program, and then finally into the PhD program. Um, So it was Mm a very organic growth. You know, I didn't finish high school. I was like, I'm going to go into Dune research, you Mm -hmm. know, and get a PhD in it. That wasn't Mm -hmm. the way it worked out for Mm -hmm. me. It was very much, you know, by happenstance and being the right people at the right time. And the Dune side of things is very much new. My undergrad and master's was more focused on engineered structures and how those modify shoreline change, and then I kind of wanted to make a small pivot and, and turn around the other direction, and look at the dunes for my PhD research, just to kind of balance out. And um, i like really glad I did.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I, I know we've had quite a few guests who have talked about, like you said, just that, you know, happenstance, like they started in on one side and kind of moved to the other. Yeah, like you said, there's a class or something like that. I don't know if we've had any who have said surfing has been their catalyst for moving into, <laughs> <laughs> into their research field. So that's definitely a first tier. So just to start us off, and just for the, the lay people in the audience, can you give us just kind of a, a quick intro into why, why dunes are so important for us and for beach ecology and environment?
1: Yeah, yeah. So if we think about the ecological services that the dune itself can provide, it's very much or it functions very similar to like a levee would, right? Mm. So they're really got to be in the first line of defense during storm events, and tend to take a lot of that initial surge and beating that storms can provide. And so, if you look at that protective service that is available, you know, if you have a strong established dune in front of your residence, you're probably going to receive much or far lesser impacts from that storm than if you had, say, no dune or a small dune or dunes that are discontinuous, you know, and not pieced together very well. So. The biggest benefit is definitely the protective service it provides during Mm -hmm. storm events and not even just storms, you know, it could just be a really high tide or just really big wave event, right? Any of those, the dunes going to be able to stand in the way and uh, help out with that erosion.
0: That was my next question here is, can you tell us a little bit about wind and water and other forces that affect beach dune creation, deformation, erosion, all that kind of stuff?
1: So when we're thinking about dunes and how they're formed, um, there's two real main forces at work, right? We have the the sheer velocity of the wind, so how fast the wind is blowing, how long the wind is blowing for at Mm -hmm. that speed. Then on the other hand, we have the resisting force of the sediment. You know, the sand will move whenever that resisting force is exceeded by the wind, when it's actually able to physically pick up the particles and move them. When that happens, is very site-specific. You know, you're dealing with different mineralogies, which is differences in density, grain shape comes into play, of course, Mm -hmm. size. Mm -hmm. And so all those site-specific sort of nuances really make beaches behave individually when we think about resiliency and how they're going to behave in that dune building process Mm -hmm. you know i love it when sand starts moving on a beach you know so i could talk (laughs) about this for hours
0: (laughs) well that's that's fine we got we got plenty of time and we'll we'll be covering a lot of this so with that background can you just introduce us into some of the projects you're working on or your main project that you're working on for your phd research
1: yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned in the intro, you know, my work is dealing with understanding the role that vegetation density and seasonal changes in that, right? As we move from winter into the spring and summer months, what that means for volumetric change within the dune. Mm. And when initially trying to tackle this question, you know, the first thing you do is you hit the books, you check out the literature, you see what's been done and what is being done in the field. And a lot of those existing methods, you know, being uh, quadrat analysis, which we, you know, kind of borrowed from biology and ecology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could do the frontal area and optical porosity, in which you're photographing mm-hmm. the vegetation and you know trying to pull out, you know how much area the wind is experiencing. Or you could use most recently drone photogrammetry, right, and pulling out by flying drones and the vegetation coverage from that perspective. But all of those existing methodologies are contingent on you going to the beach, mm-hmm. which is fine. That's a that's <laughs> a great method. It works. You know, it's one way of answering the problem. But what I was really curious about is. What can we put out there in situ to monitor for these longer periods of time you know to be at one point over the vegetation in the dune and monitor that growth and that emergence during the spring and summer months what does that look like and then how does that maybe tie into the volumetric change signal that we're seeing and so yeah that's why i chose the meter and dvi srs sensors and yeah it's been incredibly interesting to work with him out in that environment um I think like there's something else to that question I, I didn't answer. <laughs> well, I kind of no, I,
0: I I mean I, I'm I'm interested in, because you're talking about volumetric change, and my first thought was, is this something where where it's actually measuring that volumetric change, or is, are there proxies for estimating that change?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the drone flights are definitely the main methodology that I'm using to calculate volumetric change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, also in the field of view of the sensors, I've installed erosion pins which are just okay. like tiny little sticks, you know, and you go out there, they're very rudimentary. Mm-hmm. You measure them right in time one, and then the next visit, you measure them again, and you have some sort of indicator of how much change occurred. Got it. Um, so that's just in the field of view to have a sort of check resource. There were some issues with those just really noisy signals. I and mean, I think a lot of this just comes down to, you know, the flow and the eddies that are forming around the individual reeds of the vegetation. Hmm. Um, and there's something I didn't, I didn't foresee being a problem, but it doesn't make enough sense to where, you know, I can say, hang right. my hat on and say, yeah, that's exactly what's going on in, in the dune. And I think it's just this micro skill process he's coming through. How do you deal with
0: messy data in your specific research?
1: I think the way I've been trained by my, my advisor, and, and I think it goes for a lot of scientists out there is, you know, we, we don't really smooth the data too much. Mm-hmm. It's just not, mm-hmm. you know. What you get back from the natural environment, like that, that is what you have. And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with something where you have all this wave data and you want to pull out tides and you downsample, that's one thing. But, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at a a noisy environmental signal, you know, I I think what we tend to fall back on is just how many standard deviations is it off, you Mm -hmm. know, by or Mm -hmm. what is the variance? And then does the variance of that particular signal outweigh, you know, sort of the resolution of the change that we might see? And if that's the case, then it's got to go. Right. Right. But, you know, still learning, right? Every data set's unique and different and poses different challenges.
0: As you're out there, how long is your field season when you're doing this research, when you're taking these measurements or going out to the dunes themselves?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I installed all my equipment out there January 10th this past year, and they were out there up until Hurricane Ian. Mm. But for the dissertation work, um, just because of the compressed timeline, Mm -hmm. um, I only present up until about August that particular chapter, but, you know, the full blown publication will have work all the way up until Hurricane Ian happened and those instruments yeah. were pulled.
0: Right, so. right. And that's definitely something interesting. I, I definitely want to touch on Hurricane Ian. Uh, for those who are listening, we're recording this in October of 2022 and Hurricane Ian, uh, which peaked at a category four hurricane uh, was yeah pretty devastating and it passed right by where Pete was doing his research. So we'll get into that here in a little bit. I did want to come back. You would mentioned uh, using NDVI and PRI sensors. Can you just do a quick explainer about how those kinds of sensors work and what you do with them within your research?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so both the NDVI and PRI SRS sensors are a combination of your hemispherical or upward facing sensor that gets the changes within the natural environment. If it's cloudy one day and sunny the next, right? You want to account for that. Then you have a field stop sensor, which is looking down on top of your vegetation. So NDVI has been used widely in the remote sensing community, I would say, I think since the Mm seventies, for getting at vegetation density, the density changes, and can also be used for like leaf area index and, and other indices like that. And then PRI has been recently shown to be a really good indicator of vegetation stress. And so when thinking about using these, my two main questions that you touched on in the introduction is, how do seasonal changes in vegetation density, you know, affect volumetric change? That's the NDVI sensor. Then, in turn, being that these dunes are existing on this really, I mean, just crazy interface between land and sea that's exposed to, you know, frequent storm events, high tides, drought, other sorts of, you know, disturbances, you know, they get hit with a lot of stress. And I really was curious to see if a stressing phenomena occurred, what would that PRI signal look like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because the benefit of having these sensors out there is that I'm getting an hourly record of this change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so.
0: Right. Is that something where you, where you need that kind of granularity? So you're talking about hour per hour type of recordings. Would it be better to have something even quicker than that? Or what are the issues with that kind of granularity?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of this comes down to the scale I chose for my field study. And a lot of, you know, record it hourly because it's easier to take in more data and then downsample versus, you know, obviously yeah. go the other yep. way. Yep. And so by going hourly, what I'm able to do is I'm able to take a number of readings around noon Mm -hmm. and then average those out and that's my one value for the day a number of our data sets at least the ones tied to vegetation growth come down to a daily recording a Mm -hmm. daily value okay and so because of that yeah only a day is what came out of it in the data but Mm -hmm. yeah that granularity was just decided on based on um, other instruments at play and, and trying to compare you know apples to apples but in terms of if a smaller resolution is needed I wouldn't think so, but I'm also not a ecologist or biologist, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm borrowing some really cool toys they have mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. try to get at my question within coastal geomorphology. So right. I can't fully answer that question. Right. But. So
0: how have uh, the results looked so far with this project?
1: Yeah, the coolest thing that's come out of it is an inflection point, right? Actually being able to see that, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. sure your listeners that are Either in the agricultural field or you know in the biology fields that use these sensors already, yeah, I get an inflection point every spring. Like we we know this exists, but <laughs> right. but as I mentioned earlier, right? We in the coastal and aeolian world, we did not have this sort of resolution in situ looking at a plant mm-hmm. to see that inflection point. So mm-hmm. if my field mm-hmm. visits were before the inflection point and then after, mm-hmm. I just average that out, right? Yeah. Why that the timing of that inflection point matters. And when I say inflection point here, I guess I should describe, cause I've been looking at the yeah, data a lot, please. but it's around like March 22nd, there's this explosion of growth almost going from, you know, a straight line to logarithmically changing daily. Mm-hmm. And so why that really matters is the timing of that inflection point, when the plants start budding out or blooming mm-hmm. out as we move mm-hmm. into those warmer months, how does that relate to when the winds are blowing at a speed that they can move sediment? Right. Mm-hmm. And the occurrence of those two variables, are they in tandem mm-hmm. or are they not? Because I think and I can't you know, fully answer this question yet, but I think that's what really gets at why systems or some systems are resilient and recover much faster than others. You know, having worked on Pensacola Beach as well as along South Carolina's coastline, there's a huge difference in how these systems recover. You know, Pensacola might take 10 years to recover to a certain state that it only takes South Carolina a year, year and a half to. And why is that? And that's kind of uh, a little bit more background into why I sort of chose this question for my dissertation work.
0: Mm -hmm. With all this going on, what are some of the other special challenges that you're facing in doing this kind of research?
1: Yeah, um, I guess I'll start back at the beginning. I was fortunate enough to be a a Grant Harris fellow in 2020, which was Mm -hmm. awesome. You know, that announcement came in right before If the first major lockdown came and um, the big challenge there, I was, you know, scrambling to get the shipping address changed to my house, nervous about that equipment (laughs) actually getting to me, right? Because the supply Mm -hmm. chain was in upheaval. And so that definitely posed a bit of an issue. And then once I had that equipment delivered, you know, where to test it at, like everyone else, I was growing Mm -hmm. potato plants in my backyard. So (laughs) that's what I tried the sensors out on, you know, and learned really fast that if your canopy is producing all sorts of shadows in your field of view, the sensors really don't like that but you know obviously that didn't really matter for the dissertation work because the beach there is no tree canopy over the top of the sensors right. so right. it wasn't too much of an issue but uh yes yeah, so that was definitely one of the challenges the next one is definitely choosing the location of the sensors and i think a lot of field scientists out there can relate to this where you build up these experiments for months into years potentially and then it's you know it's it's game time right you got everything ready to go you hit the beach you're deploying things are going smooth, right? But before you can actually start that process of installation, you need to look at the landscape again and and verify that where you're going to put them makes the most sense to answer your questions. Mm -hmm. For me, unfortunately, as I mentioned, this is a a system that's typically disturbed by Mm -hmm. nor'easters, you know, high tides and, and storms. And so Naturally, when I went out there, like maybe a few days before, I got hit with the nor'easter, and it just really decimated the site. Because it wasn't just any nor'easter. It was mm-hmm. it was one that was a real jerk, and he sat offshore <laughs> and just pumped waves during multiple tidal cycles, right? So you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. localized, you know, sea level rise from the high tide, right? And then you have waves coming in on top of that. And then the next tidal cycle, same thing, next one. So it really did a number and, and um, scarped my dunes, which is where you're removing volume from the, the front or the toe of the dune. Uh, Mm -hmm. It can result in what looks like a cliff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of scarping across the site and removed a lot of sediment. It deposited what's known as rack, which is like the vegetative remnants of former dune grasses or marsh species, Mm -hmm. you know, and it gets sort of balled up and placed on top of the surface. Mm -hmm. And so that changed the initial game plan strategy, right, that it built up over multiple years for this deployment. Mm -hmm. And so when thinking about sensors that are trying to measure, you know, vegetation growth and, and health. You know, I didn't know if I was putting my sensors on top of vegetation that was so stressed it wasn't going to come back in the spring or, you know, if it was a viable candidate. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of just rolled the dice on it, made the best educated guess I could, you know, got some right, got others not as ideal but you know the way i look at it is this was a pilot study in a lot of ways of mm-hmm. you know these sensors that have been traditionally used in agriculture haven't fully been vetted in a sandy environment you know with grasses that aren't necessarily planted a certain way right and mm-hmm. so there's a lot of curveballs that are going to be thrown at it and that's what mm-hmm. led to a lot of bench testing before I even deployed these things there's a whole multiple months of just stripping the system down to its core variables of grain size or moisture content and Mm-hmm. Um, what different elevations of the sensor over bare sand looks like and, and is that signal trustable or can actually use this data just looking at the clean no growth of vegetation kind of in the mix of that so
0: yeah with all of that going on I do want to come back to your COVID lab you'd mentioned dealing with with COVID restrictions and uh, you know traveling and social distancing and all those kinds of things and trying to do things in your backyard but you also created some indoor test beds as well. Can you tell us a little bit about trying to imitate dune conditions indoors?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for those bench tests, I ended up building a, like a, basically a sandbox, right. And mm-hmm. so it like, really brought mm-hmm. me back to childhood. Obviously I'm like playing this <laughs> massive sandbox, but, but that was mainly done in order to, like I said, strip down the natural environment. Like what about mm-hmm. the beach is different from an agricultural field, you know? And, Number one, that thing that stood out was grain size, right? And then Mm -hmm. not just one type of grain size, but how does that sensor respond across multiple grain sizes? From the very fine that builds up the dunes to very coarse and, you know, chunky gravel, right? How is is that signal coming back? Is it affected by this or not? And then with the sandbox, I was also able to, you know, do different tests with moisture content. And so Mm -hmm. for that, I had my sandbox, did the dry run, took a reading. I think I used... Yeah, I used the ZL2 for that, which is like a little handheld Bluetooth data logger that you guys have. That way I could get quick rapid readings because if you think about it, you add moisture, you really can't wait 20 minutes because the sun is right. evaporating that off, right? So so I yeah, added that, would, would take a reading and then with a little pump like pesticide sprayer add more moisture on top of it hmm. and then the whole time taking gravimetric uh, moisture scrape samples, which is essentially just to have some, you know, bona fide metric of this is how much moisture was within that sandbox at that period of time, and that that process took a number of iterations just because, you know, I thought I saturated the surface, and then when I got all the gravimetric moisture samples back, it ended up only being like maybe like five percent. And it's like, oh, back at it, you know. And <laughs> right. so I really uh-huh. try to get the pump sprayer going, you know. And, uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it was it was really fun, fun period of time, you know, just really trying to throw the book at the, at the sensors and, and just right. see at what point the reading has more noise than I feel, mm-hmm. you know, trusted that it can actually go in the field and perform. But yeah, everything right. came back from that less than 3% of the operational index range, which is, I mean, pretty, pretty incredible. And the one that was like the highest was the most unrealistic in which you're changing the sensor out in each data logger port you know, Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't happen, but maybe once, but we just want to see in case for some reason there was a massive failure because of dune scarping and it had to replace all the sensors, you know, what error could that possibly introduce? And so really you're looking at on the order of less than 2% of, you know, the whole index, which is, I mean, I I was surprised. I just knew the different grain sizes were going to, you know, throw a wrench in the whole plan, but no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know you mentioned indoor. I did try to use them indoor, but That did not work out too well. It was very noisy. So Mm -hmm. I had to, um, kind of move everything outside, which, um, which was probably for the better, you know, I got to hang out with the sensors and get some good vitamin D and, you know, (laughs) it's a good excuse to be outside. Of course it drew a lot of looks whenever we were back on campus testing some stuff out, you know, and Mm -hmm. everyone's walking, you know, on campus to and from class and there's this guy with the sandbox you know kind of reading a book while it's just looking at bare sand you know these downward facing sensors it just didn't make any sense no one asked questions but you know they were probably thinking like that is the weirdest thing so i mean that seems like
0: just an immensely time intensive process manually spraying things checking things over and over you said there are multiple iterations like how long does this process take overall
1: oh man just the experiments I would say probably about three and a half to four months, especially the the moisture content, I would say took the longest just because as I mentioned, you don't really know until you get the oven results back, right? So if you're too low or, you know, maybe you missed this range in the middle, right? So in order to make a complete data set, it just took a lot of time, a lot Mm -hmm. of lab work as well as field work in order to get that figured out. And that doesn't include the time to build all the sensor mounts, you know, Mm -hmm. that was a different set of time involved, you know, but but like I tell people, it's like, this is the science to get to the science, yeah. right? We're yeah. only as good as the measurements we have. And if we don't know what those measurements are, then, you know, the, the confidence isn't quite where it could be, you know, if mm-hmm. we just do all this background testing before.
0: Yeah. Could you just, yeah, run us through like what types of discoveries or trends you'd been seeing with, with that data specifically? And you, you talked about grain size and other things, but yeah, can you just give us a, a brief recap of, of what you, you found in doing those experiments?
1: Yeah, yeah. The synopsis of it all is that it was a really flat line, which is good, right? It's a very, these sensors are incredibly stable, um, depending Mm -hmm. on if you are, you know, changing grain size or moisture content or the instrument height over bare sand. So, yeah, it was a really boring result, but that's okay. I'm okay (laughs) with that with, you know, whenever you're dealing with validation studies like that. Right. Obviously, at that point in time in my academic career, I was ramping up for Comprehensive exams, and like I had this mm-hmm. fuel project ready to go, and everything was mm-hmm. coming together. And so mm-hmm. initially, you know, you don't you don't think about the benefits of it. You're like, this is very frustrating and inconvenient. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, why now, right? But but it really gave you yeah, a lot of time to slow things down, think through the science, and I think it's what led to like really strong experiments. Otherwise, I would have been compressed for time. Right. I might not have done half those experiments. Yeah. And then I would have always wondered, right? So yeah, I think the benefit there was not only more time for experiments, but also more time to just read in general. I mean, I think that's a big a big part of, you know, that, that extra time that we kind of got.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to come back to talking about Hurricane Ian. I wanted to just kind of get a ground level view about how you deal within your research and your field of study. I mean, hurricanes are are one of the the central impacting forces in coastal geomorphology and how how do you work around or work with hurricanes tropical storms or other major uh, weather events like that
1: Sure yeah I feel like in our field it certainly is a factor I wouldn't say we can ever plan on them but we better make sure we have a contingency plan if they come mm-hmm. um I think mm-hmm. it's the best way to to put it Yeah no so for for planning purposes, I know like whenever I first installed in December, I'm looking at the landscape, I'm looking at where I'm at, which I'm operating within a um, what's known as a, a washover plain. So this is where it's a flat, sandy area where um, years ago a storm came and, and blew through the dune system, kind of spread this this sand apron, if you will, mm-hmm. across the landscape. So there's very little resistance there. And that's why you know high tides would flood it or a, nor- a strong nor'easter would flood it. Going into this project, I kind of knew, I was like, if there is a storm, there's a good chance it's going to, you know, destroy the dune system that's here or the one that's trying to recover and bounce back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so December through to June, I had a lot of time to think about, okay, what is my, you know, threshold for pulling instruments versus not? And what does that look like? You know, how many people do I need? How much heads up can I, I guess, be expecting? Am I going to have a couple of days to make this decision, or is it going to be mm-hmm. a six hour decision I have to make, then how does that change sort of like the, my plan of attack? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I think a lot of it going in is just that contingency plan of what needs to happen. But mm-hmm. the frustrating thing with these storms is even when it looks like there's a potential they might hit, the track shifts so much and you're only as good as the information you're given. And, and you know, obviously like NOAA and National Weather Service does a phenomenal job and they give us the best possible prediction they can provide. Mm-hmm. but there's just so many variables at play that mm-hmm. the track can shift dramatically. And that's yeah. what happened with the second landfall of, of Ian, you know, yeah. I, uh, yeah. one of my questions was like, well, how do these dunes respond to vegetation stress? Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I made the call to go out on the Thursday before the storm to pull down my met station, cause I had other instruments out there that were not mine, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to graduate. So mm-hmm. if I destroy my <laughs> committee members, net radiometer, it's probably not going to go over very well. <Right>. So I was making an emergency visit for that, but you know, the, with the vegetation sensors, I really had to think about leaving or not. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of field scientists do this mental calculus of is the data I'm going to get or the potentially potentially get worth more than the risk of losing the equipment. And mm-hmm. so that really drives your decision to leave or pull it out. At the time the storm was projected to hit south of Charleston. Which, knowing this coastline, it means that, you know, all we get is higher waves, some more wind. And, you know, we still get the surge, but not nearly as bad as they would experience it in Charleston area. Mm-hmm. And so, looking at being out there the day before landfall was made, it was really impressive how much energy was already in that system. I mean, the winds are whipping already. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of unique. There's like a cold front, I believe, of kind of pressing it offshore and squeezing some mm-hmm. moisture out so that I feel like enhanced some of the winds that we were experiencing up in that part. But uh, yeah, in the moments leading up to it, you know, walking out of the field site, there was so much wind blowing above that threshold of motion. You're just watching sheets of the beach deflate, right? Deflation is this hmm. process where we have the winnowing away of finer material mm-hmm. and that removal of mass causes the surface to, as the name implies, deflate, right? Lower down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never seen it happen this rapidly in front of my very eyes. I mean, it was happening faster than I could possibly measure it with the modern right. tools that we have, you know, right. it's really incredible sea. see. But in that process, looking at my instrument nodes, because I kind of have them set up where I have these three dunes that are more or less coalescing, varying degrees of vegetation coverage. And so I split up, and I had two ZL6 data loggers. And one was kind of further back, and one was closer you know, towards the ocean. The one that was closer towards the ocean, there was so much sediment, it actually buried all the vegetation that was within the field of view. Wow. So that had already occurred. And so for me, looking at that, I was like, well... Look, thinking back to my research question, it's like, well, I don't even see the vegetation, you know? And so, (laughs) and the data logger's about to get buried by sand. It's like, I don't think Mm -hmm. it's a good idea to leave this one in place. Mm -hmm. But the other one is further back, further away from the ocean. Storm's gonna hit south of Charleston. So there's a good chance it'll get scarped. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of mass ahead of that station. And Mm -hmm. so I feel pretty good about where it's at. I reinforced it and uh, I left Mm -hmm. it. 6 p.m. that night when I got home, the track shifted. It was a number of miles. Oh, really? Yeah. And so the center of the eye actually was half a mile away from my study site, which means that my dunes went through the northeastern corner of the eye wall, which is the strongest winds, the most intense part of the storm, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. because it's centrifugal force. And so, yeah. Yeah. And that's what it looked like when I got out there a couple of days after. Um, it was basically all of the sand was just stripped from the dunes and pushed back. So, that same overwash plane I mentioned yeah. earlier, yeah. a brand new formation of that occurred. The sensors are still out there. They're buried. I have to find them. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was one of those things. It was a game-time decision, you know, yeah. in my defense, if it would have hit south. And I've seen them move south, too, just as much. And then you don't get any data, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was a risk, and uh, I took it. it. didn't didn't bode too well, but yeah. I didn't lose everything. But the opportunity to see what that vegetation stress to tropical systems is was just too appealing to not try, right? Right. right. So, and that's oh, that's ultimately what the PRI sensors were out there for, anyway. So they were doing their job. You know, it's just the storm at that magnitude. I mean, incredible force of nature. And that was only the second yeah. landfall. When it's just a Cat One, I can't imagine a Cat Four. I think you know a lot of researchers in my field. We do kind of chase after these storms whenever they're mm-hmm. kind of in our backyard, just because mm-hmm. there's so much information we can learn from it. And Mm -hmm. so I've been on several survey crews where we go out before and then after and, you -hmm. know, calculate erosion and shoreline change. But I think being at this site for like the eight months prior, watching it grow, watching it establish, you know, and the vegetation really come into its own and, and stop sand from moving and building up those dunes. Then coming back right after the storm and seeing it obliterated. Yeah, it was powerful. I did not expect that.
0: Like you're saying, it's kind of the flip side of the same coin of tornado storm chasers, where you guys are just kind of staying in one spot, but dealing with the same thing about how do we measure the impacts of these major weather events without, yeah, losing all our equipment or, you know, finding the right spot or to move them out of the right spot in order to figure out what we want to see, what we really want to to be able to record there. How long then... Does it take for a dune like that to recover from a major storm event, such as, you know, a major hurricane might be just a matter of months or is it years, you know, can you give us a general ballpark timeline of those kinds of situations?
1: Oh, I wish I could. Um, Yeah, it's, it's incredibly (laughs) site specific, but just to kind of clue you into some of the variables that we're looking for, you know, what could make a, a stronger system is number one, you have to have some form of what we call roughness. So roughness is just anything that could slow down the wind, decrease its momentum in which it can no Mm -hmm. longer carry the sediment, right? And that that process Mm -hmm. of decreasing its momentum means that it's no longer able to carry the sand particles. It falls out in terms of deposition and then that kind of jump starts the process. So that's number one, something to stop the wind when it is carrying sand. But even stepping back though, you need sand, right? You need a sediment source. And so depending on the magnitude of your storm, that sand gets relocated, and it can go in one or two directions. One of which would be like in the case of my study site, it was blown back through to the backside of the barrier, of the barrier yeah. island. If it gets pushed too far into the marsh and is now underneath the water level, then that sand is more or less lost because right. I don't care how hard that wind blows, it's not gonna pull it out of the water and back on the surface, <laughs> right? Right, right. And then another direction in which the sand could go is offshore. These storms are of such high magnitude, you know, that it's pulling the sand and sort of grinding it off the beach and can shove it far offshore toward the normal waves that typically act within a climate aren't able to bring it back to the coast. And typically you'll see beaches will have like what we call like a winter and a summer profile where the wintertime it's, you know, it's a steeper beach because there's more wave energy. And it's pretty normal for those waves to just take that sand, move it offshore, and then it builds up the bars, which the surfers like, right? Surf's mm-hmm. much better as mm-hmm. are are cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as we move into the summer months, there tend to be these lower waves, but they're sort of like bringing these bars and bringing the sediment back to the surface. And so we get this more gradual profile that builds out wider, more room for people that want to come to the beach for tourism or, you know, sunbathe, mm-hmm. that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And so this process normally happens, but hurricanes can be on such a high magnitude that they take the sand off the beach Mm -hmm. but they move it beyond where it can be recovered in those summer Mm -hmm. months you know from Mm -hmm. those normal processes and so whenever that happens you know then you need to call in some sort of human intervention i guess needs to take Mm -hmm. place right whether it be the army corps of engineers or some Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. dredging operation beach nourishment something along those lines Mm -hmm. a soft management practice kind of brings that sediment back and i'll say that roughness you know in my case it's vegetation but you know, it could be a sand fence, it could be a bundle of hay, anything that can slow it down. Okay. Uh, roughness, we've got sediment, ultimately winds, you know, and the angle at which the wind is going to arrive to the coast, that um, governs change and transport, because it's all about boundary layer adjustment and how the wind is essentially getting used to the surface it's moving across, um, mm-hmm. which takes time, you know, and so, yeah, having ample space for that boundary layer modification to occur. I think that's the main ones. And of course you got precipitation, which, you know, turns transport on and off. Dune really is this sort of like analog result of transport and depositional processes. Mm-hmm. The interaction mm-hmm. of when sand's moving and when it stops. And then that ultimately is what a dune is. So
0: along with that, as that dune is forming or starting form, can you explain the process of how grasses begin to take hold and how long does that or how long can it take for, you know, grasses to take hold within a dune and become embedded and flourish there?
1: Yeah, yeah, man, this is what a cool question <laughs> the reason why i say this is because i think what i initially pitched a meter a few years ago was only looking at those three dunes that are now destroyed that was like the main <laughs> focus but when i pulled up to my study site back in january this past year and installed everything seeing how much rack right remember that's the vegetative <laughs> ramnets <laughs> kind of balled up on shore was on the field site, we kind of pivoted a little bit and said, well, let's look at this too, because rack isn't just dead debris. It's typically because it's been scoured and mined from a dune. It tends to have vegetative remnants that are uh, reproductive. So either be Mm. rhizomes or seeds. Mm -hmm. And also too, it's unique because it's also a roughness element, right? It's able to extract the momentum from the wind and facilitate deposition, which is what a dune needs. And so I kind of Pivoted a little bit and then also, you know, threw some erosion pins inside the rack and then photographed them, did vegetative counts per rack piles. And I divided the study area where it looked like it was more influenced by aeolian activity versus inundation from tides. And I had a control set as well. And yeah, what really came out of that is it really highlighted the role that rack has in that recovery. That an initial disturbance event levels the whole dune system. There's nothing Mm -hmm. out there. But these lesser events are able to float in rack. So maybe it's just a high tide, deposit a rack pile now you have roughness on the surface, as your winds start to blow, you're infilling this rack pile and then causing it to really jumpstart colonization and emergence within the system. And dune grass species are really interesting in that they like burial, or a lot of them do, not all of them, but Hmm. a lot of them do. And so there's a stimulus that happens of sand now buries the rack pile where the vegetative matter is, or reproductive components are, right and then now you have a burial response which then causes that plant to want to grow you know through the rack pile through the sediment and then that growth now causes it to have a bigger presence to the wind field which facilitates further deposition right and so this process continues over time until eventually you get a dune out of it right Mm -hmm. this form is able to modify the landscape and modify the flow and in a lot of cases to its favor towards slowing down that wind and aiding in that growth yeah so
0: are there other types of plants that can help in this beyond dune grasses
1: yeah yeah some of the work i've done recently has been looking at the role of driftwood kind of in the system right mm-hmm. it's something that's not necessarily alive like dune grass is, but mm-hmm. its benefit in terms of nutrients is this long-term source of nutrients right as it breaks down slower because of its size mm-hmm. and its mass you know but it kind of helps that system of establishment And so I know it's not really a plant per se, (laughs) everything else that's going to be on the surface is going to be some form of dune grass um, species, you know, so whether it's like your bitter panicum or American beach grass or sea oats, Mm -hmm. they're all kind of within a similar class.
0: That was my question. So are there any issues with beach degradation, say outside beyond your region of research there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that kind of comes down to the underlying geology of the region. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is your beach slope is much steeper on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast or the Gulf Coast. And because of that, if we think about things like sea level rise or like localized sea level rise because of storms, the same amount of change vertically means two different things because of that difference in geometry, right, when we think Mm -hmm. about slope. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why we see a little bit more erosion Maybe more visible, uh, perhaps, you know, okay. on, the, on the East Coast and Gulf Coast. But yeah, I'm not saying that erosion doesn't occur on the West Coast. It definitely does. It's just, it looks a little different because of that. Like I said, that ge- geologic framework. And right. also in a number of places, you know, you have kind of like ne- negative sea level rise values because of the isostatic rebounding, right? As mm. glaciers mm-hmm. push back mm-hmm. thousands mm-hmm. of years prior, you know, that land is still bouncing back up. And so.
0: Right. I have heard of, of beach grasses being imported elsewhere, introduced other places to protect beach dunes in other places. Is there any risk of beach grasses becoming invasive species in these new areas?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, we're seeing a lot of this on the west coast right now. I haven't done research into it myself, but I have several colleagues who do. I don't remember if it was introduced by the Fish to Wildlife or if by some management agency or not, or if it just naturally floated across, but European beach grass is really aggressive at growing tall and fast. Mm -hmm. And so what they're seeing over there is that, yeah, it's growing tall and fast, which means that it's sort of cutting off the sediment supply to the native species behind those regions and is becoming a real issue in terms of natural biodiversity, right? And then in terms of other invasive species, there has been a lot of work done on it. What I don't remember, though, is if those were intentionally planted or not. I don't know. But what Mm -hmm. we also see, though, on dunes is the... Sort of invasion of centipede grass, right? Mm-hmm. As we have these homes and properties along the coast, you know, obviously one of the centipede long yard, and so by planting that, sometimes it also will crawl out onto the dune. And I don't think it, it poses as much of an issue in terms of like outcompeting, just because dune grasses are incredibly resilient to salty air, to long periods of drought, you know, to like full sun exposure. And so yeah, they kind of they can hold their own, I guess, against that. Right. And I did misspeak earlier. There are succulents. Or succulent type species that do pop up here on the east coast. There's gonna be like sea rocket, but they're kind of like one-hit wonders. You know, they'll pop up <laughs> a little bit of uh, roughness, you know, to the surface, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, so they do exist, and they are, you know, very beneficial for initiating some of that initial deposition.
0: As we kind of wrap things up here, I'd love for you to just explain to our audience about how can your research help the world at large, or what can we as a society learn from the result of what you're finding out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think a lot of where the benefit of my research as it stands right now is, is going to go is to offering this new methodology, this new lens to see vegetation data through from this like in situ perspective, right? As I mentioned earlier, these inflection points. I really think there's a lot of strength in understanding the timing of that emergence with, you know, local conditions of wind patterns and, you know, if it's the rainy season or not, and how those different variables interact with one another in terms of being able to put a number of different study sites or different locations around the country on the same playing field, right? A way Mm -hmm. in which we can Mm -hmm. distill it down to these core variables and measure resiliency or get at, you know, why does it take this beach X number of years to recover, whereas this one can do it in half the time. Because ultimately that sort of information tells us which systems are efficient. And if we know where efficiency lies in the natural world, then how do we take what Mother Earth is already trying to do and help it out a little bit? If I know what the ideal case is, then I can make some really powerful coastal management decisions in order to help out and give it that critical piece that might otherwise be missing. Now, obviously, we can't, like, you know, make a ton of wind blow all the time, right? There, <laughs> there, there are limitations to it, but, but I, I do hope that it will kind of shed some more light into those variable interactions. That leads to resiliency.
0: Along those same lines, too, is what can we as a public do to help preserve dunes and promote their recovery?
1: Mm. Well, definitely don't walk on them. <laughs> okay. All <laughs> that right. That goes without All saying. Right. I mean, we've had sign campaigns for years now, and that doesn't really help very much. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but yeah, definitely, because whenever you walk on the dunes, you know, it's obviously going uh, it, to, it really hurts the rhizomes that are underneath, and they're pretty fragile uh, from mm-hmm. that sort of repeated trampling. You know, I think a lot of it's advocacy going to the beach and just taking a second to notice the dunes. I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of us get sucked into going to the beach for the beach. And so once we get there, you know, we're looking out towards the waves, but Mm -hmm. you know, like if you turn around and look, that's the barrier that's preventing your house from potentially flooding during the next major storm, Mm -hmm. you know, doing little things like if you have beach rack that washes up on your shore, you know, and, and maybe you're a homeowner or maybe you're just visiting, but you can move that rack, you know, towards the dune line. You know, mm-hmm. towards the toe of the dune and then it would help it build it out make it thicker and wider mm-hmm. and help it prograde on its own. So there's little things like that you can do but yeah I think the biggest thing is just just take a second and notice them. It's amazing how little recognition they get. And I always mm-hmm. whenever I teach mm-hmm. physical geography on cl- on campus, you know, I always whenever I get to my coastal geomorphology section, I show a photo of the beach, you know, and I have my class okay, label everything you can see on a piece of paper in this photo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Only about 30% of them notice the dune and it's just I think that's a real kind of indicator to where we're at as a society you know
0: final question we always like to try to get any fun exciting or crazy stories anything else that you'd like to share along those lines
1: I always say that if you're a field researcher you kind of have this sort of soft spot for type two fun you know type two (laughs) funds where you know nothing's going to plan. You know, Mm -hmm. you ran out of water or it's hotter than you were expecting, or you get caught Mm -hmm. in a rainstorm, you know. Mm -hmm. When I was going down to go collect that equipment in advance of the storm, I'm out there and the wind's whipping and it's awesome. I'm taking all sorts of photos and videos, just like really taking in the change occurring before my eyes. But when I finally got the first load of equipment completed and and first load, because it took me four days to set everything up and I only had well, the weather window kept getting shorter, but I only had on the order about maybe like three hours to get it all down. So, you know, I'm moving at a pr- pretty quick pace, but I underestimated how high the storm surge that was already coming in was going to offset the high tide prediction. And so by the time my cart's loaded up with thousands of dollars worth of equipment, I looked down the coast and I realized that I'm not going to make it <laughs> so, because <laughs> no. because literally the, the beach is, go- you know, it's covered up by water. It's not gone, right, you know, but it's right, covered up by water and... Right. Okay, well, it's fine. I'll just you know hang hang tight on top of the dune, you know, because I know that my Overwatch is gonna flood now. And when I couldn't pass, it was still an hour from high tide, mm-hmm. so that's when your gears start turning. You're like, uh oh, that's probably mm-hmm. not gonna bode very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I post up on a on top of a dune, hopefully waiting out the storm surge and it's like initial flooding event in advance of the storm. And then underneath my tarp and the winds whipping next to metal and all this equipment, trying to stay dry. You know, check the radar just to see what's going on and uh. Yeah, it's definitely the outer bands of Ian, and I was like, "Well, uh, this is too close for comfort." Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, and you're questioning life decisions and all that, all that stuff <laughs> at that point in time. But, uh, but you know, I mean, I had to get that equipment. There's no, no way around it. So yeah, I'm, I'm waiting out there and checking the radar and waiting for the tides to go down and uh, watching the whole system deflate. I would say it's, it was definitely a hmm. intimate experience <laughs> with how that yeah. Overwatch plane was going to fare in that particular storm event. But yeah, it was definitely the closest I've ever been to. Uh, the storm or I've never been out there where I literally got stranded and had to wait Mm -hmm. it out Mm -hmm. but it was all right it was only like six hours I was able to (laughs) that's all make it yeah yeah (laughs) what was fortunate though is that I think that like I said I'm pretty sure that they said there was a cold front that was butting up against Ian Mm -hmm. and in that process it was squeezing out a lot of that moisture and so because Mm -hmm. of that I wasn't sitting underneath a well, it looked like a lot of rain on the radar, you know, the mm-hmm. outer bands of this massive mm-hmm. system. So mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate for that, but it was mm. just a matter of waiting for the water to go down.
0: That's wild. Well, any other final things you'd like to share with anybody? Any final statements or suggestions or plugs or anything like that?
1: No, no. I was just going to say, um, if anyone uh, listening wants to, you know, get a hold of me about research or anything along those lines, um, you can... Uh, find my email address uh, on the department website. It's just petert at email.sc.edu. And yeah, no, this has been great. Thanks again for all that meter does. And uh, I've been a fan of the podcast since it first dropped. So it's been really cool to get the offer to be on here.
0: Thank you so much, Pete, for taking time to share your research with us. As always, super fascinating. And if you in the audience have any questions about this topic or want to hear more, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com or reach out to us on Twitter at meter underscore ENV. And you can also view the full transcript from today in the podcast description. That's all for now. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on Remeasure the World.